Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Welcome back, ladies, to the Story Night Podcast and to our first ever Story Night sequel. Tonight, I've got Leslie back on a very special day in her life story which she will explain when we get to that chapter. And it's just so amazing how God works through dates and timing and just never misses a detail. Presumably, if you are tuned in to this part two, you have already listened to part one of her story. If not, stop right now, listen to part one so that you can hear the story in its entirety. Because when we left off with Leslie, She was kind of at rock bottom of her 20s, and we're just going to hand it right back over to you, Leslie, and let you pick up where we left you. Yes, yes. So last we met, uh, I was at my rock bottom of my 20s. You said it perfectly. I had just been heartbroken by my first love. He had cheated on me, which was an absolute betrayal. And I'm sure some of you can relate to that feeling, but I was lost. I was still connected to the Lord, but I wasn't going to church and I wasn't really, you know, digging into the word or to prayer or anything like that. I was kind of just grasping for my life at that moment and spiraling downwards, you know, just kind of very careless with my life. I just didn't care. And during that relationship, I had lost a lot of friends as well because I knew it was wrong and I knew my friends weren't really digging the relationship either. And we know that when we're in a relationship that our friends don't like, but they don't quite say anything or maybe they do. And then, you know, that ends a friendship. You know, I I had a few moments like that with a few people. And so I found myself betrayed alone in a downward spiral. And I reconnected with my oldest best friend she and I met in elementary school in Irvine and she and I, she is my singing, singing Xena buddy is what we called each other. Cause we, she was my first friend that we sang together and we grew up in high school singing together. Her name is Tawny. She's still one of my dearest friends to this day. And she's doing amazing things vocally as well. And we reconnected in that time. And when she came back into my life, I was just, I felt like I had found my first lifeline and she had been working over the years on different cruise lines, you know, as a singer and traveling the world and living the dream that I wanted to live, but I wasn't living it because I was caught up in this relationship. She said, you know what? You need to get out of here. You need to go. There is an audition. There's an audition coming up soon for Holland America cruise line and you're going. And I was like, really? I probably had tears in my eyes. Like, really? Do you think I should do that? You know, I was just lost. And she's like, girl, you have never gone away to college. You've never left. You've never gone out and explored. Like, it is your time. You are free. Go after your dreams. So I did. (laughs) I took her advice. And I drove up to Los Angeles for this audition. And I remember sitting in the car before I was walking in. And I just prayed. And I said, okay, God here I am. If this is what you want for me, Lord, let it be so obvious that this is the road you want me to go on and let it just be so clear that this is where you want me to go. Cause right now I'm just so lost and I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. So I'm just putting this in your hands. And I did the audition. It was singing and dancing and you know, all the the fun stuff. And they kept me and they kept me and they kept me. And by the end of the day, they were literally following me out of the building with their clipboard, making sure that I knew that I was going to be hired. And it was just one of those moments where I was just, again, just chuckling, like, God, you are so good. And when I ask you, you give, (laughs) you know, I just asked for a sign and you gave it in that moment. And so I was hired and I started to feel excited again. I started to feel like, okay, my next chapter, here I go. <laughs> then here I go. I'm going to, I'm going to leave the past in the behind, you know, leave it in the dust and I'm going to, you know, go on this new adventure. And I started to feel excited again. And about a week before I was going to go into rehearsals, I get a call and they said, Hey, how would you feel about the Mediterranean? And I said, well, <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm trying to be cool on the phone, but on the inside, I'm exploding with excitement because I've never been outside of the United States. I mean, I had traveled with the circus through the United States, but I had never been outside. 
And I, you know, I'm bursting and, and freaking out on the inside and staying cool on the phone. And I just said, you know what? I think that's doable. I think that's okay. We can do that. Yep. And gosh, a month and a half later, I was flying to Italy. I lived the next seven months uh, on Holland America Cruise Line in the Mediterranean. And I got to experience a lot of different places. I mean, we were in Italy, Greece, Turkey, Croatia, Spain, Portugal. I mean, every day we were in a new place. And that resonated with me so much because that was what I loved about traveling with the circus is we were waking up in new places every day. And I just loved that spontaneity and that idea of just waking up and the sun coming up and you're just in this new environment. And it was so amazing, but I was also still really messed up. (laughs) So even though I was super excited and feeling like, okay, I'm in this new place. I'm, I'm in this new season of my life. I'm so excited. I was also still really broken and heartbroken and still trying to figure out what I was going to do. And at the time, you know, obviously I was doing a lot of drugs and and they were drug testing on the cruise ship. So I had to stop, which wasn't a problem. It was never an addiction issue for me. It was more a counterfeit comfort. So it wasn't a problem stopping, but on the ship had access to massive amounts of alcohol (laughs) because that's really all there is to do on the cruise ship. When you're at sea, you're not allowed to really mix too much with the passengers and we were on 10 and 20 day cruises anyway. So it was, it was more of an elderly generation on these ships anyway, but you know, it was kind of like the love boat. I don't know if any of you have seen the love boat, but it was like living in that environment on a ship. It was very close quarters. You had all the different levels of people, the captains, the, the crew, and then you had the performers and you had, you know, the people that working in the, the different rooms, cleaning rooms, you know, just all these different people all working together. And we spent a lot of time in the bar and I drank a lot. We were all partying all the time and mix a girl who is heartbroken and just looking to leave her past behind and move into her future. And I woke up not remembering what I did the night before. I mean, I was just as much of a mess on the ship as I was on land, but nobody knew me. So it was like a fresh start, but it really wasn't because I was still me. (laughs) I hadn't had any healing yet. And so I meet this guy on the ship. He was a Marine engineer. So he was, you know, in like the white suit all full of grease and oil and just looking manly and whatnot. And he had an accent because he was from Scotland. I had decided in that moment, I was going to be like all the other girls, modern girl. I was going to have a one night stand. And to this day, regret it. Because this girl right here cannot just have a one night stand. And God knew that, but he let me walk it out because we, he lets us reap what we sow for a reason. And so I end up getting in a relationship with this guy because he was immediately infatuated and he was hooked. And I didn't really take into consideration the other side of that. I was only thinking about myself and what I wanted to get out of it, but I wasn't thinking about him. And so his infatuation became obsession. And when you're all on a cruise ship together and you're all drinking together, you don't understand or realize that someone has an alcohol problem because everybody's drinking. I just, it didn't even occur to me that this was an issue for him. And so, you know, I tried to sort of break it off. You know, he, his contract was ending like a month and a half into mine. And I was like, Hey, let's just let it be what it is. We had a good time. Um, You know, let's just leave it at that. Like we had a great time. Let's have good memories. Peace out. I'll see you when I see you. And he was not having it. He was not having it at all. And he ended up coming back onto the ship. Um, He ended up turning his contract around so that he could continue having a relationship with me. And at that point I thought, oh boy, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Trouble. So I'm in this relationship that I really don't want to be in. It's, it's, I'm just kind of stuck in it and we're continuing on, but I didn't realize um, how much of a problem alcohol was for him. He ended up getting fired off the ship at that time. And in that moment, I was devastated. Obviously I'm kind of all over the place in a mess 
in my own emotions. But even though it wasn't exactly what I wanted, I had sort of convinced myself that's what I wanted. And so him leaving was actually a bummer. And so he left, but we still maintained our relationship. And around that same time, it was just about the time where I could decide whether I wanted to continue on and do another contract on the ship, or if I wanted to be done after seven months. And that was a question, honestly, because it was starting to hit some of my insecurity issues because also at that time, they were very specific about what they wanted me to look like on the ship. They wanted me to be a certain weight, they wanted me to have a certain look. And I was really struggling with my eating disorder at that time because I was feeling the pressure of them telling me, oh, you're looking like you're getting heavy. You're looking, you know, like literally flat out telling me a customer on the ship thought you were fat in the show. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, and, and, and so I was really feeling kind of at that point done with that. I didn't want to be driven by my looks, so to speak. And so I prayed about it and I was like, okay, God, like if you want me to do another contract and I'm supposed to go through all this stuff, just let me know. But if you want me to be done, give me a sign. Just like I had asked when I was, okay, Lord, do you want me to go on this ship? Like every time I've been in a momentous like shift, I, I ask him for a sign or a word or something so that I know that I know I'm in the direction he wants me to go. I just have to say that there are so many women that feel like they can't talk to God if their actions don't meet his standards. Yeah. Which I think you're proving over and over is not the case. <laughs> totally. <laughs> that you are, you know, you're living out certain lifestyles and doing certain things that, that you're saying you knew were not right, or you didn't want to be doing them, but you're but you're caught up in it and and yet you're still talking to God and he's still listening to you. Absolutely. It's not a Absolutely. oh you have to make yourself a certain way or or earn a certain report card in order to have a conversation with God and to have him actually listen to you and reach back out to you and I, it's just such a misconception and so many women I think they know it in their head but not in their heart. Oh yeah. And well, I just I had to note that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's true. I mean, but that's just, that's God, you know, he, he uses the things of this world to confound the wise. Like he loves us so much. And, and the lie is that we have to perform or we have to be a certain way or do a certain thing in order for him to even respond to us or receive us. And he already did it. Like he sent his son to die for us before we were even born knowing full well what we would go through and he still chose to make us you know that's the awesome <laughs> that's the awesome part you know but obviously when you're in it you don't feel that way and the devil is right there in your ear telling you the exact opposite of the truth and when you don't have that knowing in the depths of your soul it's so easy to get swayed and discouraged. And I mean, for the things that I've been through, you know, things could have ended a lot differently, but they didn't. But by the grace of God, it's because of his grace and his love and his mercy for us that expands far beyond anything we could ever do. That is just so wonderful. And so he answered, he answered again. And what I did is when you're working on a cruise ship, especially in international waters, you definitely do not use your cell phone because that is an expensive phone call. And so I never used my cell phone, um, but something just told me, probably the Holy Spirit, <laughs> that I should check my voicemail while I was on the ship. So I did, and I had a voicemail from my friend, Vernon Porter, full circle, who I met through my mom's musician boyfriend back when I was eight years old. So I've known him, my whole life. And he's a musician. And he called and left me a message. And he said, Hey, I heard you might be coming back uh, to the US. And I'm working at this church. I'm the worship pastor here. And we have all volunteer singers, but we really need a singer on staff. If you're coming home, is that something you would be interested in? And I was like, Okay, God, I hear you loud and clear. This is where you want me to go next. And 
keep in mind, even in my drunkest, drunkest moments on that ship, I was still crying out to God, just like in my downward spiral and I'm on drugs, I'm still crying out to God. Like there was still no disconnect between me and him. I just wasn't as invested on my end as he was on his, you know, and, and it's like that thing that, you know, it always says when you don't feel close to God, who moved? Well, it wasn't God. It was us. Right. So even though I was far away from him, I could just feel him calling me. Right. So I'm still in the relationship with this guy. He's back in Scotland because he got fired. He's trying to get his job handled. He ends up getting a new job with a, um, an oil rig company because he's a marine engineer. So he needs to work on a ship doing his thing. And I go home and we're still talking and um, I'm still a mess, you know, still partying with my friends and doing drugs at home and, you know, whatever. I, I, I hadn't kind of buttoned myself up yet, so to speak, but I was headed in that direction. And working at that church was a big part of that. At first, I wasn't super paying attention. I mean, you know, I had grown up in church, I'd heard all the Bible stories and whatnot, but I just I wasn't in that place where I was really paying attention yet. I was just doing my job. And I was thankful for it. And I loved it. And I felt so good singing and singing to God. It just it 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 fed me and filled me in so many incredible ways, but I wasn't quite there yet. <laughs> and I was still talking with, with this guy and we were talking about moving in together, uh, which I knew I didn't really want to do. But again, I wanted to be wanted more than I wanted to do what was right because my wounds were far bigger. <laughs> and so I was still just trying to figure out my life. And there was one moment one day, the only time I ever heard God's voice audibly, he and I were on the phone talking about where we were going to be living together. And all of a sudden in the back behind me, so close, I hear, are you sure you want to do this? And it stunned me to the point of actually turning around mid conversation and looking to see if someone was behind me. And I knew no one was behind me because I was at home by myself. And I literally took a moment and thought, okay, that was weird. That must be my insecurity talking. <laughs> and I go back into the conversation and don't think another thought about it. Uh, we end up getting a place together and he really insisted on paying for everything. Um, he was very adamant about that, even though I was working. But what I didn't realize was that was really just a mode of manipulation for him to keep me within the parameters of where he wanted me to be. But I just thought, oh, hey, super. He wants to pay for everything. I finally am treated, being treated the way I should be treated. Little did I know. You know, when I look back, uh, it just kind of seemed like I was playing house. You know, I was kind of doing all the things and we were doing the things and I was working at the church and starting to get a little more invested in the church and starting to pay more attention. And during that time, I also was baptized again. I got rebaptized at that church still working and singing and being intimate with him and doing all the things that I really felt like I didn't want to do, but I was doing. And he ends up out of the blue proposing. He just says, Hey, you want to get married? <laughs> not super, not the, not the picture of what you've been dreaming about ever since you were a little kid, but it was what it was. And I said, yes, even though I really didn't want to, I really knew deep down in my heart, this is not what I wanted. But I felt like at that time I was just so deep, I didn't really know how to get out. And I hated myself about it, but then I thought, okay, I can make this work. You know, I did love him. I, it's not that I didn't love him. I loved him. I don't know that I was in love with him. I didn't think of something better was gonna be for me. So I just went with it. That is such a common feeling. Oh, totally. I mean, I know so many times the women will hear stories of someone who sort of, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term is living a double life and might think, oh my goodness, like, how can you be, you know, baptized and singing at the church and then doing this other life? And mm -hmm. well, why can't you just stop? And yeah, and I hear from women all different ages over and over and over where there's almost a trap. And it's amazing that it's actually it's written about in the Bible, like, Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. 
and how common that happens over and over. And then you get to that point. I've heard it so many times. I've gone too far. I'm in too deep. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, well, I'm not worth rescuing or I'm not capable of turning it around or or somehow in this twisted way, well, God's not powerful enough to change my life. (laughs) And they're just lies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And when you don't understand that you're allowed to have boundaries, you don't even bother trying to go. It just seems so unfathomable to even consider telling somebody, no, that's really not what I want for my life. And really, ultimately, that was the problem is I just didn't feel I didn't have enough value in myself to set any standards. So I didn't. I took whatever came my way. The first boyfriend was the first guy who ever showed any interest in me. And the second boyfriend was the second guy who showed any interest in me. And I took it because there was nothing else happening. And I thought, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is what God has for me, even though it totally wasn't. (laughs) And even though deep down I knew it, I didn't have the courage to cut it off when it needed to be cut off, which was really in the beginning. But he was so adamant about maintaining this relationship that it was really, I mean, that moment that he just showed up at my door on the cruise ship because he had come back, it freaked me out. And I was like, well, I guess I'm stuck in this. So here we are now engaged a year later. And I see this life that's before me and it had nothing to do with anything that I dreamed about. If I didn't know where you were today, I'd probably be sobbing at this point listening to your story because it's so heartbreaking to think of all of those pure and good, beautiful dreams just kind of shattered. But by God's grace, there is a turnaround to this story. So how, how did this turn? Well, we were engaged for probably about a week and his issue with alcohol really sort of came to the surface. And after an entire day into the evening of him being beyond intoxicated and us in a complete conflict brought on total confusion for me because it came totally out of the blue. He ended up taking the ring off my finger and telling me he was moving back to Scotland and he was never coming back. And he kicked me out of our apartment. And so I left heartbroken, shattered, confused, because again, you know, all of these things are happening and I didn't want it, but I wanted it, you know, and then it was falling apart. And this whole house that I had built, this glass house of what I thought I wanted, but didn't really uh, was shattering. It left me super confused, but, but the Lord gave me a flashback to my experience as a child with my mom's boyfriend being an alcoholic. And I realized in that moment, I had an aha moment. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to do this again. I started to see what was really before me. And it was the same life I had grown up with. It was going to be a recycled replay of my childhood and possibly my future children's life. And in that moment, I saw God really coming through. And even though it felt like my whole world was collapsing, I knew that God was in it and I knew ultimately he was showing me this is why I experienced everything I experienced as a child was so that I would have enough courage in this moment as a young 20 something to be able to say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to let this go. And, you know, there was a little bit of back and forth between he and I, because I was feeling guilty. He was clearly struggling with alcohol, you know, the day after he tried to, you know, get me to come back to him. And I just said, no, I was done. But again, my guilt and and my feeling of savior complex, (laughs) you know, we still sort of maintained a little bit of a relationship, but ultimately we ended up breaking up for good. But then he really turned and his alcoholism and, and, and the demons that he was facing in his own life, he decided in that moment that he was going to dedicate the rest of his life to destroying mine. And it became a 10-year-plus struggle with threats and threatening my friends and my family, threatening my career, 
just whatever he could do to bring chaos to my life. And he did. Every terrible thing that, that someone could say about a, another human being, he said about me. The Lord really used that situation to push me just into his arms. That was, a, that was probably the most integral point of the turning point for me with my relationship with the Lord to where all I could do was run directly to him face first, head first. Even though it was a chaotic time, it was actually a very sweet time with the Lord because he really in that season showed me the peace that passes understanding. And I really got a, a tangible revelation of that because when, when someone is so threatening and you're, there's such an attack on who you are as a person, your identity, your character, and you know, I, I've never heard a fly. That's never been my heart. But when someone heals accusations at you like that, you start to question yourself. But it really was the impetus that really got me to rededicate my life to the Lord. And that was really the moment that I decided, okay, this life that I'm living this way, this sort of half in half out thing, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. I don't, I'm not happy. And so I really just went full force into my relationship with the Lord. I started working with my friend who also worked at the church. So my friend and I were playing together. We ended up getting a job at a restaurant in Newport Beach called Mastro's and we were singing. He was 20 years older than me. Uh, but all of a sudden he started catching feelings for me. And again, here I am in another situation where, okay, he's my friend. I don't actually have feelings for him but maybe I'm supposed to because we work together. We work at church together. He's a Christian. This is the first guy who is a Christian and he's interested. He's also older. He has his life together. Maybe God is setting this up and it's actually the perfect situation. Our whole lives are tied in together, but I just didn't, I just didn't, wasn't feeling that that was it. But again, I started feeling this pressure. Is this what God really wants for my life? Is this right? I didn't feel it, but it just sort of fell into my lap, just like the other relationships sort of fell into my lap and nobody else was coming around. Nobody else was showing any interest. And I gave in and we ended up starting a relationship together. We ended up engaged a year and a half later. And maybe once, you know, maybe once we get married, things might change. Has anybody ever had that conversation? <laughs> maybe once this happened, things will be different. That is so not true. <laughs> and um, again, even though I was working in the church, we were living in sin. We weren't living the way I wanted to live. But again, I felt stuck. And again, I felt like, well, I'm already here. And again, I just didn't have the courage to walk away. I think there was so much fear about what was on the other side of that because my livelihood, my income, my church, everything was all tied to this person. And what is my life going to look like if that is severed? And so I just, again, went with it, but wasn't super happy. It was kind of miserable, honestly, which is not how you're supposed to start out a marriage. <laughs> I hear you say the word again, mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. And there are, I know there be women who listen and think, are you kidding me? Like you didn't learn the lesson the first time or the second time or whatever. And how easy it is for us to pass judgment on those who continually fall into the same struggle yeah. Over and over and over again. Yeah. But the reality is we all have something. All mm -hmm. of us have something that we don't want to be doing or that we're having a hard time with. And it seems like no matter how many times we run to God and ask for forgiveness and have that start over and that turning point, we start the cycle all over again. Mm -hmm. And at some point you feel like many people just feel like giving up. Like no matter how hard I try, I can't do this. I think of people who try and quit smoking or quit drinking and so often they make one step forward, two steps back, five mm -hmm. steps forward, two steps back. And it's mm -hmm. just this ongoing battle. Yes. Yes. And what I have found after going through all of these things is that I was dealing with the fruits of the issue or maybe not even dealing with it, but there was a root problem in my heart. There was a wound in my heart that 
I knew was there, but I didn't even know how to address it. And I didn't know what it meant to bring it to the Lord. I didn't know the process of healing yet and that it is a process. I, I love the analogy of like, you know, when you're, when say, you know, you've been in a terrible car accident and you have a bunch of different issues going on in your body, you're not just going to go into the emergency room and have them deal with everything all at once. It, your, your body wouldn't be able to handle that level of procedure. So they take the most imminent thing, work on that, and then you heal. And then they go on and schedule the next thing. And then they work on that and then you heal. And it's a process. If I look back and I paint like a a picture and all of the main points of, of these issues, you can see it all goes back to the roots of my childhood as typically they all do. You know, those fear, the abandonment, rejection, fear, fear of provision, fear of loss, just all of that stuff. And, and those things were rooted deeply, but all of these individual situations were just new fruit from the same root, you know? So I ended the first relationship. I ended the second relationship, but I hadn't actually dealt with the real problem. And parallel to this engagement that I'm in, I'm also starting to do some healing. So there's a little bit of revelation I'm experiencing, but I'm also, again, stuck, right? So I I went on with the engagement and with the marriage, the wedding. It was a great party. (laughs) The wedding was beautiful. But again, you know, that night on my wedding night, I, I cried because I think there was a moment of, oh my gosh, I've just sealed my fate. I've just made a decision that's lasting because I'm also very loyal and I take covenant very seriously. And so I understood that I had made a covenant of marriage and that I had made a commitment and I was going to write it out. Right. So I'm married, working, we're still working together. And I get this really interesting phone call from a friend of mine that I had met through Mastro's. Um, and he is, um, he is a musician. He's actually a Grammy nominated songwriter and he is in the band Chicago. And we had done some work together and he had called me up and asked if I would be interested in singing backup for Joe Walsh. And I had to Google it for a second because when he just said Joe Walsh, I, I, I just didn't understand who it was, but Joe Walsh from the Eagles. And once I started seeing the music, I was like, oh, I know who that, I know who that is. Sure. You know, I, I would love, I would love to audition. So he sets up an audition for me, you know, within a few months, I'm flying on a private plane with Joe Walsh on tour singing as a background vocalist, which was an incredible opportunity and my first big sort of leap into this new life. And I'm thinking, gosh, like the year I'm getting married, I'm also get starting this new life and this new career. And I start getting a little encouraged and thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. What else do you have for me, God? (laughs) So I'm on tour and I, and, and in the meantime, my husband, he needs to continue working. So he's uh, working with another vocalist while I'm out on the road. But about nine months into the marriage, about three months into the tour, I came home one day and found out that my husband was cheating on me. Nine months into our marriage. I found some emails between the two of them. And I read this one line, and I will never forget to to this day. It's still is heartbreaking, even though I'm I'm so thankful it's over now. But in the moment, he said, I can't believe I found the woman of my dreams after I got married. And I was absolutely devastated, beyond devastated. And I was still on on the road. So I, I found out, I called him out on it. And then I had to leave on a plane the next day. And so I gave him a month. I said, listen, you need to figure out what you want. I'm not going to run and cry divorce, but you need to figure out what you want to do with the rest of our lives. If, if I need to get off the road 
if we need to go to counseling, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this work because I made a commitment. But notice I said, because I made a commitment, not because I love you. I was so committed to my commitment and being a woman of my word and honoring the covenant that I had made. So I gave him a month. And by the end of the month, he decided he did not want to be a husband and he ended up divorcing me. And that was probably the most emotionally devastating experience that I had ever been through. I was completely blindsided and heartbroken, cried every day for months. Now I see, though, it was my pride that was really hurt because I I see how God interceded again in my life. Because if you look at in these three relationships that I had, they all ended with some form of betrayal. And God knows me just like he knows all of us. And he knows how loyal I am, that I was going to stay in a toxic relationship out of loyalty, but he knew the only way I was going to get out, the only way I was going to say I'm done is if there was some form of betrayal. So I see now he didn't cause those things. He didn't cause those things. God doesn't cause the terrible things in our life to happen, but he did allow it to happen knowing ultimately that that man was not my husband. That was not the husband that he planned for me. That, and he was not going to allow me to be in a toxic relationship any longer than that. I see that now. In the moment, I couldn't handle it. In the moment, my pride was, how could he do this? What's so great about her? You know, I had all those conversations like, what did I do? What's wrong with me? You know, my insecurities were just blazing. And I really, that was, again, another season where I really was digging deep into the Lord. And I was going to church, multiple churches, my old church, Calvary Chapel, my second old church, Calvary Capo Beach, my church I was working. I mean, I was just digging and diving in wherever I could because I just, when I was, when you're in a space like that, all you can do is just get on your knees. When there's nothing else to do, you just have to get on your knees and surrender and be like, God, clearly, clearly there are things that are wrong in my heart. Clearly there are wounds that you need to heal. So I surrender. At this point, I just give up. I give up and do do what you will. That word surrender, I think is so often the missing piece. We're invited, no matter how many times we fall, to just run back to him. Mm -hmm. And what I've the pattern I've seen in many people's lives is they'll run, run back, but they don't surrender. Mm-hmm. Like there's something still that they're holding in their fist. They haven't fully surrendered at all. And I know that everything that you have mentioned so far prepared you. It it was like training, strength training, spiritual strength training for what you were yet to face. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think it really, I think that was probably my rock, rock bottom. And I think, you know, looking back, I was just at, I was, I was at the end of myself at that point. I mean, there was really no lower that I could go, or at least I thought, and, and I'm just entering my 30th year on this earth. And so we're going through the process of divorce. I end up moving in my friends um, that I had met at Mastro's. They took me in and let me stay at their place while I was just healing and, you know, getting my life back because I really felt like my whole life had been completely unraveled. But what I later understood was that because my foundations were built incorrectly, God had to allow for the complete demolition of my life. And it had to happen because you can't build a solid building on an unstable foundation. You just can't. And so he, he took the wrecking ball and he let it all crash. And he let me experience all of those things because I needed to see the fruits of my choices and understand that we do reap what we sow. And it doesn't mean that God is punishing us, but the way and the choices that I was making, I got to the point where I was like, this is wrong. I cannot do this anymore. I cannot. So I spent the next season of my time 
deeply, deeply seeking healing, seeking spiritual depths that I had never experienced with the Lord, really just nurturing that one-on-one relationship that I wasn't taught about in church when I was young growing up, you know, um, but just really getting that intimacy with God. And it was actually, even though it was the most painful time in my life, it was also one of the most beautiful times in my life because it's in those places of complete surrender that you really can see the face of God working in your life. And he starts to show you, this is why these things are happening. See, like, it's okay. And at the time I couldn't imagine the peace that I was going to end up having. But in that moment, I, I just went with it. And so for the next year, I was just working on myself and I'm moving on with life. I'm still often on touring with Joe Walsh. I'm singing at the restaurant with another person and moving on with my life. And that December, I was out with Joe and we were in New York and I wasn't feeling very well. I was getting bruises on my body and marks and I was feeling very weak and tired And by the end of January, I'm in the hospital with a hemoglobin level of two, which is basically dead. I don't know if anybody understands what what that means. But during that time, I was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And I was hemorrhaging a lot. And it just I wouldn't stop hemorrhaging. And I ended up in the hospital with nine blood transfusions. And all out of the blue, by the way, this started in December And by January, so not even a whole month, I went from feeling totally normal to being on my deathbed. And at this time, I'm so strong in the Lord that I am actually rejecting what the doctors are saying. (laughs) I was so emboldened and had so much faith that the doctor is telling me, we need to do a bone marrow biopsy on you because this doesn't make sense. And I'm thinking do we really need to do this? (laughs) Is that really necessary? Um, As I'm plugged up to, you know, a blood transfusion happening and, you know, I'm, I'm half passed out. So they end up doing a bone marrow biopsy and they have me in one of the rooms at this point and they come in no bedside manner at all and tell me you have leukemia. We need to start chemo immediately or you're going to die. And I, first of all, I'm thinking, okay, what? (laughs) No, what? Leukemia? I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't know what you're talking about, sir. Uh, But uh, I'm going to say no, but thank you. This is not happening. I don't have this. And so he says, no, you do. And this is moving very rapidly. And we need to start you on treatment now. And... I was thinking, okay, well, some of my friends had breast cancer and they did alternative treatments. Maybe we can look into some alternative treatments. I wasn't super gung-ho about starting chemo when, you know, I'm completely sideswiped by this diagnosis. And he says, by the time we search alternative treatments, it's going to be too late. You're going to be dead. And so again, my stubbornness and my faith pushed through. And I said, okay, well, I want a second opinion. Then he says, fine. The next day, the head of oncology comes in and she says, you know, I agree with the diagnosis, but if you were my sister or my mother, I would tell you to get out of here and go to UCLA immediately. And she said, don't tell anybody. I said this now I tell everybody, but I don't say what hospital she was from, (laughs) but you know, because she's giving away, you know, a million dollar procedure right there. But she said, we get maybe one or two cases of this a year. And they do this all day, every day. They are up to date on the most intricate, the most new techniques. That's where you should go. And so I said, okay, we signed myself out of medical authority the next morning. And I drove to UCLA and I show up in the ER They had get me in a a bed in the ER within 30 minutes. The fellow of oncology runs in. Now, keep in mind, from where I came from to get to UCLA on the 405 freeway, uh, taking 30 minutes to get there is unheard of on a Friday, midday, 
that was God. There was no way that I would get there so quickly without him making a way for that to happen. Then the fellow of oncology just happens to walk past me again, another God thing. She then sees my chart. She wants to do another bone marrow biopsy so that they can have their own test results. She wheels me into a little side room and right there in the ER, I'm getting another bone marrow biopsy. And by the end of the day, I am in my own room on the sixth floor, which is where all the leukemia patients are. And my diagnosis was ALL leukemia, which is rare in adults and even more rare in women. So typically ALL is what children get. If they ever get leukemia, that's very typical in children. It's rare in adults. So I used to joke that I was not even mature enough to get adult cancer. (laughs) But I was there on the sixth floor and I said, okay, Lord, I know this is not going to take me out because there have been too many things that you have said and spoken to me about my life and the things that you have for my life that have not come to pass yet. So I know this is not going to take me out. I was adamant from the get-go. This is not my death sentence. I know you're going to get me through this. And I know that you're going to heal me. I just don't know how it's going to happen. And so my doctor, he's telling me all of the different procedures that are going to go on. I'm going to have to start chemotherapy so that we can get me into a space of remission. Because when you have leukemia, it's blood cancer. It's not the same as a mass that you can cut out. It's it's in your blood. And so if you don't get to the root of the issue, again, going to the root, (laughs) you're going to continue to produce these toxic cancerous cells. So he said, we're going to get you into remission and then we're going to put you on the bone marrow registry because you need to have a bone marrow transplant. That is the only way that you are going to be healed from this. I was absolutely terrified of a bone marrow transplant. You know, I I was kind of taking all of this. It all came so quickly. Literally one day I'm in the hospital, then I'm being told I have leukemia. Then I'm being told I have to have a bone marrow transplant. And that's the only way I'm going to live. It all just came on so quickly. And not only that, because when you have a bone marrow transplant, you have radiation and chemotherapy. They also were telling me I might want to consider freezing my eggs. Because when you go through things like that, Uh, the likelihood of having children after that is very slim because of the massive amounts of medication and treatment. It just kills your eggs. And so I'm taking all of this on and I'm just, it's just me and God. I'm just, I'm not even really hearing what they're saying. I'm just talking to him and I'm just saying, okay, Lord, I need a fleece. I need a fleece. So I know you're going to heal me, but I know how you're going to heal me is this. You're either going to heal me just miraculously. You're going to snap your fingers and I'm just going to automatically not have cancerous cells in my body anymore. Or the chemo is going to do it. And the chemo putting me into remission is going to be what heals me. But if you want me to have a bone marrow transplant, I need to have a perfect match. And when you're looking for bone marrow in a transplant, um, they automatically want to go to your siblings, your, your full blood siblings, because they have similarities in their chemistry as you do. So they're a better match for a bone marrow transplant, but I don't have any full blood siblings. So that was not an option for me. So they had to put me on the registry and there are over 25 million, 867,000 people on that registry. At least there were at that time. It's been five years now. And the odds of me finding a match is then one in 25 million, 867,000. That's the odds of finding a perfect 10 out of 10 match. But that is what I said to the Lord. I said, okay, this is how I'm going to know. We need to have an agreement. And I just knew in my heart that he was kind of chuckling, but like going along with it, he was going to be like, okay, that's fine. Uh, That's fine. We have an agreement. So I went on with the chemo. I had a few complications with the chemo as I'm on the registry, not finding any matches at this point. So my friends, they put together a drive to try to get more people to swab their cheeks to try to get, you know, see if anybody is a match. And I'm just going through this chemo. I have an allergic reaction to one of the chemos and turned yellow. It affected my liver. I looked like a superhero. One of the X-Men characters, I ended up with pulmonary embolisms, which is blood clots. 
in my body because of another one of the medications. I, I had a lot of complications, but from the beginning, I had just decided this is not taking me out. This is just something I have to walk through and I'm going to take it one day at a time. I'm going to do everything the doctors say, but I'm not going to limit my mindset to what they have seen as the outcome. Doctors practice medicine, but my God is the ultimate physician. And it says by his stripes, I am healed. I also was very clear about what I said because our words have so much power. It talks all over the Bible about life and death being in the power of the tongue. And, you know, we were made in the image of God and he spoke everything aside from Adam into existence. So if we're made in his image and he spoke things into existence, then our words have power too. So I never said I have leukemia. I didn't want to wear it as a part of my identity because I didn't want to give it permission to be there because it didn't have permission to be there. And so I would say the doctors say this or the diagnosis is this, but I never claimed it as my own. And um, I was very cautious about they would give me stacks of paperwork with all of the side effects from all of the treatments that they were giving me. And I never looked at a single one of them. I handed them to my mom or I handed them to my friend Liz. They were the ones that were kind of carrying me through this whole thing. And I said, I will tell you if I feel something and then you can confirm whether or not this is a side effect because I don't want to plant a seed in my own mind and then start looking for something that's not there. And this is how I walked it out. So they put me on the bone marrow registry and I'm going through chemo, just waiting for a perfect match and um, something comes in. I get a match, a perfect 10 out of 10 match. And I was thinking, oh, well, there it is. Awesome. Thank you, God. And they scheduled the procedure to happen in August. And they have to go through a series of questions and checking to make sure that the match qualifies. And for whatever reason, she didn't. And so we were kind of bummed about that. But then they said, oh, we also have a stem cell match. But it's not a perfect match. It's like a four out of six on the scale of matches. And when they said that, I had a little conversation with God and I said, that's not what we agreed on. I, <laughs> I said a perfect 10 out of 10 match. And so they, the doctors decided they're going to go on with the stem cell match, even though it wasn't perfect. They were going to keep the date. But in my heart, I knew, no, that's not it. So I'm on a little bit of a break between chemo and they let me go celebrate my birthday in Las Vegas. And my birthday is seven, seven. And so seven is the number of completion. So I am in Vegas with my mom and my friend Liz, and I get a phone call on my birthday from the coordinator. And she says, Hey, I just, you know, I've been working on, you know, your case. And, and I just had this unction that I should go check the registry again to see if there are any new matches. And I found you another perfect 10 out of 10 match. And I was just ecstatic. And I just thought, God, you have such a great sense of humor <laughs> because that's exactly what I needed to know. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. So she ends up working out. It's a girl. She's a little bit younger than the other donor as well. So that was also a good thing when it comes to bone marrow transplants. And they set me up, scheduled me on August 5th. And they prepared me eight days in advance, four days of total body radiation, four days of chemotherapy, one day off, and then the bone marrow transplant itself. And everything went smoothly. My doctors were shocked at the amount of bone marrow that actually came in from my donor. And the transplant itself was actually quite uneventful. It was really more for me like a blood transfusion. They just bring the the bone marrow and they hook it up to my pick line and it just dripped into my body. And, and somehow miraculously as God made our bodies so miraculous, the bone marrow just knows exactly where to go, but they call a bone marrow transplant a rescue because they basically have to almost kill you. They have to eradicate all of the bone marrow in your body. And that's what the radiation and the chemo does. It kills all of the rapidly producing cells and so they had to take all of my numbers, all of my blood numbers to zero. And then you have the bone marrow transplant. And then 
day after day after day, typically around day 15 post-transplant is when your numbers start to go up and you start to see that it's actually taking root. And because of that, I have brand new blood. And there's something really beautiful and really symbolic about that because the Lord was really showing me that my old self, my old life was dead and buried and he was resurrecting me as a new creature. I'm going to cry as a new creation to the point of even giving me new blood, new blood and everything about that journey was completely orchestrated and ordained by God to handle what needed to be handled in order for that to happen. All of my financial situation was handled. All of my medical was handled. I had the best doctors in the world when it comes to this particular type of treatment. And he brought me out onto the other side and I knew he was going to do it. And he did. Yesterday, I celebrated my fifth rebirth day. And when you have a bone marrow transplant, you get a new birthday. That's why they call it a rebirth day, because they killed you and brought you back to life. So basically, I'm a 37-year-old, (laughs) five-year-old. And I can just say that I'm nothing but grateful for my entire story thus far, because I see now that his word, when it says, He works all things out together for good for those who are in Christ and called according to his purpose. All of these things in my life that either happened to me or that I created in myself, nothing was irredeemable. Every single thing in my life, he has turned into something glorious and beautiful. And he does give us beauty for ashes. There is so much beauty. And now going through everything that I've been through so far, I feel like I've lived a thousand lives in one lifetime. But I see how faithful God is and how loving he is and how intricately involved he is in every aspect of my life and all of our lives. And all the shame that I felt, all the guilt, all of the pain of the rejection and the abandonment he has worked on and is still working on those things in my life. But it's so amazing. He's redeemed my relationship with my mom. We're stronger than ever. And through that season of going through leukemia, that's really where that platform was because I was really forced to lean on her and trust her and let her be the mother that she always wanted to be. But at the time, When I was a child, it just, she wasn't capable of it at that time. And with my dad and just understanding, you know, as a child, you don't understand why things happen the way they do. But as an adult, you see and understand that people are just doing what they're capable of in the moment and understanding that and learning that and being able to forgive forgive her and allow her to be my mom, allow her to literally physically carry me from the car to a wheelchair, to a bed and humbling me and getting my pride out of the way to be able to receive those things. And I see now everything that happened in my life had to, for me to be the person that I am today and for me to actually love who I am And love the experiences that I had because I understand that the only way to refine gold is through the fire. It's so amazing to hear you speak and see your face now knowing knowing how close you were to death really not that long ago. Normally, as we're closing, I ask for words of hope and encouragement for listeners who identify with your story. Although it kind of feels like everything that you've said in part one and part two were words of hope and encouragement. You've, your story really just is a testimony that that no one is too far away from God. Nothing is so broken that it can't be healed or redeemed. And no matter what your sin or your shame or your mistakes, you can be a new creation, completely new. Yep. And as we opened, instead of our typical introduction, you introduced yourself with a song. 
And so instead of our typical closing, we get to have you close with a song. Mm -hmm. And this is a song that I, I've chosen because the words really speak to my whole life process and, and really all of ours. And it's, it's a song, it's called New Wine. The lyrics are in the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. And in the soil, now I surrender, you are making new wine new life. And it's in the crushing and in the pressing and in the turmoil. There's actually a really great story really quick about making wine and how some of the sweetest grapes actually are grown in the most treacherous of environments because they're forced to dig those roots so deep that they survive. But in that, they make the most sweet fruit. Yes, I'm nodding, nodding along with you about understanding that the, the greater the turmoil, the higher the quality of the fruit. Um, mm-hmm. As someone married to a sommelier in the wine industry, I've, I've learned about this many times. And yeah. for, for anyone that maybe doesn't have a background in church or Bible reading, the wine is such a symbol of the blood of Jesus, of the sacrifice. And there's so many metaphors there, but we're just gonna we're just gonna let you enjoy the lyrics of this song because it is absolutely beautiful. This song really speaks to me, and I hope that it speaks to you. In the crushing. In the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me a vessel, make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil trust you I don't need to understand so make me a vessel make me an offering make me whatever you want me to be I came here with nothing but all you've given me Jesus bring There is no wine, there is no power, there is no freedom. The kingdom is here, I lay down my old flames to carry your new fire today. And where there is no
bring new wine out of me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus, bring And you are new wine. <laughs> Amen. And I'm so glad you are. Amen. Me too. Would you pray for the listeners who are longing to be new wine? Mm. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, oh, I just raise my hands in glory and submission to the amazingness of who you are and your heart for us. Lord, I pray that you're healing anointing would just flood each heart in this moment. Lord, that you are a God of redemption and you are a God of healing and forgiveness and victory. And I thank you, Lord, for every listener who's still in it and doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. Lord, I thank you that your faithfulness is going to carry them through. Lord, and, and that they can stand on the truth of your word, that you are a man of your word, and that healing and redemption is for all, and there is no one exempt from that. And I just thank you, Lord, for your ever-present companionship with each one of us, Lord, that we are not alone as we're walking through these things, but you are right there with us, holding our hand standing on our side, guiding us through the hard stuff and rejoicing with us in the good stuff. And Lord, I just pray a blessing of favor and love and redemption and new wine, Lord, that those that are in transition would be ready and open for this new season. And those that maybe don't believe that it's possible for them, Lord, that you would just bust down those lies because those are just lies. There is not one that is unworthy of your love. And I just praise you. And I praise you for this testimony because it says we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Thank you, God, for giving me such an opportunity to share this rich testimony of breakthrough and healing. And I pray, Lord, that it would speak to everyone who hears and that you would go with them as they go on with the rest of their day the rest of their night, and that you would just speak to them in this moment, those words of encouragement that they too will get to the other side of whatever it is that they're facing, because we are overcomers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Leslie. You're welcome. And praise God for your story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you for opening up deeply raw chapters and being so transparent. And thank you listeners for tuning in to this first two-parter. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by it and that you join us next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.